Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which has been victorious in the U.S. Supreme Court, Luke Goodrich presents some concepts relative to the preservation of religious freedom. Plus, Melinda Fuller is tired of a culture that drives people to hustle rather than to obey God, and she's speaking out. Find out more about the blessings of a life of obedience ahead. And Sharon Dirks of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, a Ravi Zacharias International Ministries event speaker who has a background in brain imaging as well as theology and apologetics, discussed how we cannot reduce humanity to just our brains. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from author and commentator Michelle Malkin offering an in-depth look at the well-funded globalist agenda and how it affects the immigration issue, offering comments on how the agenda has infiltrated the church. Plus, at the Christian Product Expo International in Murfreesboro, Tennessee recently, I spoke with Eric Campman, who is a publisher and an author who has seen the fruit of learning to rely on God even when faced with difficult situations. Some of his comments are ahead. Finally, Stephanie Brorsma of Reclaimed Ministry experienced the betrayal of her husband, but God has restored her marriage and established a ministry that reaches out to women who have experienced similar circumstances. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Luke Goodrich is Vice President and Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and has won Supreme Court victories for Little Sisters of the Poor and Hobby Lobby regarding the Department of Health and Human Services contraception mandate. He is the author of the book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. With some important insight on religious freedom, here is Luke Goodrich. I think the, the biggest development we're seeing today is that, you know, if you went back 50 years ago, uh, traditional Christian beliefs about God, about sexuality, about human life, not everybody accepted those beliefs, but they were viewed as normal. Uh, but nowadays, times have changed, and traditional Christian beliefs about God and truth and sexuality are now viewed as a threat to our modern culture. And we see this in the area of abortion and human life. We see it in the area of human sexuality. And because of that, because traditional Christian beliefs are now viewed as a threat, we see increasing conflicts. We see attempts to force religious organizations to participate in abortion and dispensing drugs that can cause an abortion. That was our Hobby Lobby and, and Little Sisters of the Poor cases. And we see it in the area of human sexuality. We're representing a religious adoption and foster care agency right now that's been placing children in loving homes for over 100 years, and the city of Philadelphia cut off that ministry and is trying to shut it down, saying, you can't place children in loving homes anymore because we disagree with your beliefs about sexuality, because you won't place children with same-sex couples. So we see increasing conflicts in these areas of the law, and a lot of these cases are now headed to court. And Luke, I, admittedly, I don't know how you deal with this, perhaps, or if you deal with it in the book, but I know that there has been quite a bit of debate, even within the, the Christian community, even the evangelical community, with respect to religious freedom rights and the so-called LGBTQ rights. There have been really initiatives to try to find some sort of middle ground. There are, are many 
leading voices that are saying there really is no middle ground in this whole area. What what would you say with respect to the the analysis of what is is certainly a conflict between religious freedom? In fact, you have some who would put that in, in quotes, religious freedom, as if to perhaps lessen the amount of credibility for that concept. But but how do you see this with respect to religious freedom and the the groundswell for LGBTQ rights? I, I address this at great length in my book, Free to Believe, and I have a chapter solely devoted to laying out the nature of the conflict. And in short, there, there are two main areas of conflict. There are private lawsuits. So that's where a, a gay couple will sue a religious person, for example, uh, over employment, like we talked about earlier, or over getting access to goods and services like a wedding cake, flowers, uh, or sue over adoption placement. Uh, the other main area we see these conflicts is in the area of government penalties, where there's no lawsuit, but the government itself will deny benefits, will take away licenses or accreditation, will cancel contracts, will exclude religious groups from government facilities uh, simply because it deems these religious groups to be discriminating in violation of law. And so I run through a lot of these different conflicts and then have a chapter devoted to different types of solutions. And there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, but if you look, for example, uh, to the area of abortion, there is an analogy there where, you know, even though the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade and uh, a bad decision uh, in recognizing a constitutional right to abortion, uh, ever since Roe versus Wade, the law has been crystal clear even if people can get an abortion, they cannot force religious people to participate in that. That's how we won the Hobby Lobby case. That's how we won Little Sisters of the Supreme, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor. And so, in the same way, even though our law currently recognizes a right to same-sex marriage, it can also recognize that religious people and religious groups cannot be forced to participate in that in violation of their religious beliefs. So that comes in employment law. That means religious schools have to be allowed to make their own decisions about who can teach at those schools. Uh, religious adoption and foster care agencies need to be able to continue their ministries uh, without being shut down. And even uh, religious business owners need to be able to step aside from participating in same-sex weddings. And I lay out the arguments for why that's a right solution, why that's a good solution, and how we can get there. Luke Goodrich here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website lukegoodrich.com. Next up, it's Christian communicator Melinda Fuller, who discusses principles that she lays out in the book, Obedience Over Hustle, The Surrender of the Striving Heart, Confronting Elements of Striving Through the So-Called Hustle Culture. Here now is Melinda Fuller. So the hustle culture is pretty exhausting. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. this idea that, you know, you have to set your goals and slay your goals and you have to do it by 10 o'clock in the morning. And unless you are doing all of the things and exhausting yourself and just striving to be everything to everybody, then you are, your life doesn't have significance. And it was kind of the messaging that overwhelmed me uh, several years ago after I'd quit my job. The idea that, you know, you have to have a giant personal brand and platform and you have to be on social media all the time because if, 
life, if it doesn't happen on social media, then it doesn't really happen at all. (laughs) And even in the church, I started feeling that. And I I don't think that it's um, an idea that the church is immune to. I see it a lot in in church culture. And so I I did the research and this word originated, you know, several hundred years ago. And it, it wasn't something that was good. It had very negative connotations and we didn't use it as like a badge of honor that we do nowadays. You know, now it's like, oh, I'm hustling or I'm getting after it or I'm, you know, slaying my goals and, you know, I'm, I'm a bo- my own boss and I can do whatever I want and I can have whatever I want. And, um, and it's just become like this super trendy word and this idea that, people are really rallying around. And yet when we look at scripture, um, you know, Jesus message is humility and servanthood and sacrifice and laying down our agenda and laying down our wills and yielding to God and, um, obeying what it is that God's asking us to do instead of trying to like be our own little gods and, um, manipulate and make things happen for ourselves. So, um, my scripture, uh, research really started in Genesis and kind of went all the way through the New Testament. So from Adam and Eve, all the way through the disciples and Peter and what it looked like for Jesus and his disciples to walk out obedience. So it's it lots of research for sure. <laughs> oh, yes. Biblically speaking, where do things kind of, as we might say, exceed what God has planned for us or exceed where, how biblically we should be living? Right. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden, you know, open up in Genesis. And what does God do? God creates everything, creates man and woman, and then he gives them what a job to do. And so from the very beginning, we see that God values work ethic. And the thing to note in Genesis is that the work that Adam does is in partnership with the Lord. It's not like Adam can point to a tree and say, grow apples. God is the one who allows that to happen. And Adam is the one who comes along and stewards the land and who pulls the harvest and who takes care of and tends to the garden. And so I think that's the model. Like before sin entered the world, the world, um, Adam's work was in partnership with with God. And it changed after the fall, um, when sin entered the world, the verbiage, the, the wording that God gives Adam is now by the sweat of your brow, you are going to have to strive to get your existence from the land. You're going to have to work hard. And I think that that's what happens. Um, we, we tend to start off really, really well. God gives us this goal or we're working towards, um, you know, a goal that we have either in our professional careers or in our personal lives. And instead of believing that when we work with God, that's when we get the best results, we tend to say, oh, I've got this one, God. I'm going to mm. do it my way. I'm going to do it in my timing. And and that's where the striving comes from. And when I look at Jesus, um, Jesus is the one who, you know, Jesus was super busy. Like nobody can deny that. He sure. Um, ministered on a really big front to huge groups of people, but then he knew what it meant to pull back and to rest 
and to get alone and pray alone with his father or get alone with the disciples. You know, Jesus didn't choose 12,000 people to minister to on the day to day. He chose 12. And I think that's a really good model for us. Melinda Fuller here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to Melinda, that's M-A-L-I-N-D-A, Fuller.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Sharon Dirick's She is an apologist with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and senior tutor at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. She has a background in brain imaging and shared information relative to her book, Am I Just My Brain? Here now is Sharon Dirks. What we see is that brain imaging has been able to show um, not only what's going on in the brain, but also bringing in the notion of the mind, what how is the mind connected to the brain? Because at the heart of what I talk about in this book is saying that actually we don't just have a brain, we also have a mind. So we have the brain with all of its neurons and chemicals and hormones, and we have the mind with all of its thoughts and feelings and memories and decisions. And the million-dollar question is, what Mm. is the relationship between those two things? Now, what neuroscience has clearly shown us is that they are connected. You know, you put someone in an MRI scanner and tell them to use their memory. Well, areas of the brain known to be involved in human memory are lighting up. And so we're clearly seeing these two things are connected. But just because they're connected doesn't mean we've solved everything about Mm exactly how they're related and and what a human being is. So I think what I'm trying to say is that, you know, neuroscience is incredible and we, we applaud the work and the expertise of scientists, but there are some questions that neuroscience can't necessarily answer. We need to step outside of the scientific domain into theology and philosophy to really answer those questions. You basically, in the book, as I understand it, are, are really trying to counter this whole attitude that, that human beings are just, well, we're, we're machines. And you actually deal with that in several chapters in the book. And as we wrap up our conversation today, share with us how you actually deal with this whole belief that some hold to that, well, human beings are merely kind of like machines. Yes, well, I I take um, a view uh, espoused by uh, Ravi and Francis Schaeffer and ask three questions. Firstly, um, does it uh, is it internally coherent? Does it hang together um, according to its own frame of reference? Does it uh, help explain the world? And um, and does it um, can it be lived? And actually, to say that we're just a machine. Um, actually calls into question everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't hang together according to its own frames of reference. If we're just a machine, then everything I say, everything I do has no meaning. It's simply something beyond me, forcing me to, to live as an automaton or as a puppet of some sort. Secondly, um, uh, does it make sense of the world? It doesn't seem to make sense of the world because we live as though our lives have meaning, as though we're more than just machines. You know, we, uh, we, we make all kinds of decisions as though it is us that, that made them. Um, and, you know, can it be, uh, uh, can it be lived? I, I just don't think that we do actually live that way. You know, we, we punish wrong behavior, we reward good behavior precisely on the basis that it was a person 
that did it, not simply a machine that is, is programmed to be a certain way and can't help themselves. And so I land with saying that brains don't think, people think hmm. using their brains. Um, and actually this leads to a, um, a more holistic view of the human being uh, as a, a f- an integrated physical and spiritual being. And the way that I really land it is by saying, look, we can go around in circles about where um, what, what the, the person actually is and what the human mind is and how it relates to the brain. But another question is to ask, why do we have one? Where does it come from? Um, can we trace mind to its origins? And, you know, of course, uh, whether you what you believe about the world affects how far back you look. And if nature alone is not enough to explain the human mind, maybe the origins of the human mind lie beyond nature. Well, the very first words of the Bible say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that before there was anything physical, there was God. And this same God has made humans to reflect some of his qualities in his image. And so I land by saying that we have a mind because God has a mind. We think because he thinks. And mind is fundamental to the cosmos, fundamental to the universe in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of that, there is hope for solving this hard problem of how you get from neurons to thoughts, because everything is undergirded by a thinking being known as God. Um, And that's really where I I, I take things towards the end. Sharon Derricks here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website rzim.org. That stands for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. She is listed under speakers. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection Podcast. And you can find the podcast through the Faith Radio app as well as a variety of other podcast platforms. Plus, when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you will find a link to the Intersection Podcast. You can find it in the Media Center as well as through iTunes. And there are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is also accessible. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Author and commentator Michelle Malkin joined me recently to discuss the well-funded globalist agenda and how it's expressed in the immigration issue, which has impacted areas of the church. She's written a book called Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? Here now is Michelle Malkin. All you have to do every year is look at what's going on at the United Nations General Assembly, and there are compacts that uh, so many of these NGOs work on in collaboration with George Soros' Open Society Foundation, basically trying to usurp local control and autonomy in America to redistribute the rest of the world inside our borders. That's what the entire refugee resettlement racket is all about. And they have hijacked our ability to resist uh, the fundamental transformation of our communities. How do you think the Twin Cities in Minnesota became the terror recruiting capital of the world? 
Well, it was the United Nations uh, determining uh, the hundreds of thousands of numbers of people, primarily from Somalia, primarily Muslim, uh, who were dumped into the backyards in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Minneapolis without the consent of the people. Instead, what you had were religious subcontractors, left-wing groups like the Lutheran and Immigrant Refugee Services, who pocketed billions of dollars to assist the United Nations, not to mention uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year in subsidies from the State Department and the United States Health and Human Services to relocate these refugees who then congregate in um, essentially what become no-go zone areas. They have no fealty or loyalty to Western principles and Western values, and there's no consequence for the subcontractors that dump them in our communities. Uh, they never get held liable when somebody turns out to be a jihadi who exploited our compassion by lying about religious or ethnic or political persecution and then took the opportunity of being here to plot mass murder against Americans. This is not some sort of fantasy. I have an appendix in the book that lists 60 refugee jihadis, refugee jihadis, who lied to get into this country and then were charged, arrested, and or convicted of terror plots in America. I'm so glad that you brought up the refugee resettlement program. I wanted to bring it up. There was an excellent piece at the website that I follow quite frequently called capstonereport.com that actually highlighted some of the aspects of your book, especially as it pertains to some of your comments on the refugee resettlement program. For our audience, we're looking at an infiltration of the church with this agenda. If you would comment on how the church is being infiltrated into participating in this agenda that you've just outlined for us. So a lot of rank-and-file Christians and Catholics and um, uh, people who attend synagogue every week are clueless about the fact that the money that they use to donate to their church is not going to their fellow citizens. It's not going to help uh, the local homeless population. In fact, it's going to support an entire multi-billion dollar refugee resettlement racket that is coordinated and run and sponsored by the United Nations and George Soros. And there are nine uh, lucrative contract holders um, who are primarily responsible for relocating refugees into our country. Um, You named several of them, and I talk about how um, pretty much every one of uh, these entities gets the vast majority of its overall funding from the federal government. And yes, they have been completely co-opted by this agenda, voluntarily co-opted, and they make a lot of money um, with the initial reception and placement of these refugees. Anywhere from $2,000 to $4,000 per refugee is the fee that they will take in, uh, along with a a special loan program where they can get uh, money recouped back from that and housing costs through the Health and Human Services Department. There's no um, accounting or regard for the fact that many of the people that are being resettled by these religious agencies um, do not assimilate into their communities, overwhelm the local schools, health, education, and welfare, every aspect, let alone the public safety and national security implications, as I mentioned, with these uh, refugee hotties. And then these these organizations will exploit the sense of compassion that most um, good-hearted and good-faced 
Christians and, and Jews uh, have um, who are giving money to these organizations, not understanding that what really it's all about is the bottom line and filling pews with a, a new generation of churchgoers who, if any allegiance they have at all, it's not to the country, but to, to the people who brought them here in the first place. Michelle Malkin here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website openbordersinc.com. Well, publisher and author Eric Kapman joined me at Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the recent 2019 Christian Product Expo International in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We talked about his latest book, which is entitled The Lord is My Strength, Praying the Psalms Day by Day. From that CPE conversation, this is Eric Kapman now. You had actually not pursued spiritual things in your life, but you really had this inclination one day to buy a Bible. Tell me about that. Well, you know, the the wonderful thing about being a Christian is uh, if you're, you know, smart about it, you see how God works in retrospect, and you don't project into the future and say, well, God is going to do this, that, or the other thing. You can only pray about that. In my case, in retrospect, I look back and I, I see Psalm 50:15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. And I discovered that as the last verse I put in my very first book, which was called um, Trail Thoughts, which became Signposts. It was the very last thing. I said, this is my verse. This is what happened to me. I actually did call upon God when things were getting so bad in my company that I thought I was going to fail and fail badly. And, and, and I was very secular then, so this was the one value I had. So a failure was not an option. And yet I didn't know how to get out of the situation, so I did pray. And two weeks later, I have this very strong inclination to go buy a Bible. I think it came from the Holy Spirit. Child. But sure. what the good news is, I was not disobedient to the vision. I went out and bought a Bible. The problem is I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so I, it, it rested on my desk. It was very big, very heavy. <laughs> Just put it I on said, the desk and make, watch it. Yeah, I watched it, and actually. Unfor- yeah, unfortunately, it went nowhere. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and neither it did was I. Still there. Yeah, and you didn't get there. you go. There's a, there's a lesson for you. So many people, they buy Bibles. <laughs> you know, you got homes with, what, four, five, six Bibles, and people don't read them. And so they don't go anywhere. But the Bible doesn't go anywhere either if you just sit it right there. But when you put it to work, things happen. And this is going to sound really stupid, <laughs> but I have, I have an advanced degree in English literature. I know a lot about Shakespeare. I wrote my master's de- uh, thesis on Dickens. Uh, I've taught at college level, blah, blah, blah. When I started reading the Bible, I get to the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what is this? This was exciting to me. It was poetry. Wow. It was figurative language. It was something I was somewhat familiar with. And when I got into Romans, I knew I was, you know, in the land of giants and I was a pygmy. And so uh, it really started incentivizing me of trying to learn the Bible. But where do you start? I mean, this is a question so many people has, and I didn't know. But two years later, in uh, 1991, on February 13th, 1991, my son's birthday and Ash Wednesday, I discovered this lectionary. 
And I've written a piece about this, I call it, in praise of the lectionary life, because from that day uh, on, every morning I went into this lectionary and we get the Psalms, I would get an Old Testament, I would get a letter, and I'd get part of the Gospels. And through 10 years of this reading, I got to the place where I could sit down with a senior pastor in my church and do 365 podcasts mm. on the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And then we did the same thing with Jesus on in a book I did, or actually a podcast we did called Getting to Know Jesus. Which became a book. Which became a book in uh, 2016. And then I knew something about social media by then, although I hardly am an expert. I'm really an unexpert in social media, but I have people that help me, and I put together, uh, I know the Psalms very well, I read them seven times a year, and so it was very easy for me to pick out 365 passages that I love, that I think represent the entire Bible in their entirety, and I, I um, found a picture I've taken in all my hiking, I've hiked the Appalachian Trail, all of it, I have done big mountains, I've done all this stuff, uh, as well as running a company. And uh, I took a lot of pictures. In, in the introduction to the new book, uh, The Lord is My Strength, I say there are three threads. There's mountains, there's, a, uh, there's a, a camera, and there's Jesus Christ. And they all come together in this book as a way of coming to know Scripture through the use of photography on every page of the book, a psalm, a piece of a psalm, and then Twitter-length commentary, which has earned me at this point about 5,200 followers. And I'm Man. hoping that that's going to grow. Eric Campman here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, Eric Campman, that is spelled K-A-M-P-M-A-N-N dot com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, more from CPE International with the founder of Reclaimed Ministry, and author of the book, Reclaimed, Finding Your Identity After Marital Betrayal. Stephanie Brorsba discussed her response to her husband's confession of illicit activity and relationships and how she turned to God in that difficult time. Here now from that CPE conversation is Stephanie Brorsma. As I started a process, as I started to really just dive into the word and, you know, get advice from pastors and mentors, um, it became very apparent that I still loved my husband. I just didn't love the disease that he was fighting, the addiction. And so I really had to work on separating the two things, the sin and the sinner. And I loved the sinner. And that was part of God's process in me. And I realized that it, the forgiveness aspect of my healing journey was not so much for my husband, but I needed to forgive myself. And I was the one that needed more forgiveness. And it's really hard to explain that. Um, a lot of women just kind of get it if they've been in this position. But for myself, um, God was teaching me so many different things throughout this journey. And the moment that I spoke, I forgive you to my husband, that's when God really started to work on my heart. And that's kind of when the, the hard work began, but that's when the beauty of the story started. Stephanie Brorsma joining us today here on the Meeting House on Faith Radio, the Christian Product Expo International 2019 in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So Stephanie, so many questions here with respect to the story. Your your husband had really experienced a dramatic event in his life, mm -hmm. a, a transformation, transformational event through Christ. He had had and confessed to you pornography addiction, as well as engaging in affairs. Yes. You've received the news. How long did it take? Now, 
one of the steps you had mentioned that you all separated. One of the steps was for you to actually say to him Mm -hmm. that you forgave him. How long did that take? Well, God has a funny way with timelines, <laughs> and it was on day 10 of our separation, which just so happened to be Good Friday. Okay. So I wanted to accept what Christ had done on the cross for my sins, but I wasn't willing to offer forgiveness to anybody else, um, especially my husband. Like, I, I could offer it to somebody who had said, you know, something horrible to me, but, you know, I really wanted the blood of Christ to wash me and to cleanse me of my sins, but I wasn't willing to give it to the person that I was married to. And so God and I really wrestled that day. And um, finally, God, you know, broke through to my own heart, and I was able to speak those words, but I needed to say them, to believe them, to hear them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then post-Good Friday, it was a daily discipline to walk out that forgiveness, to remind myself when I was, you know, approached with a trigger or a memory or to replay that confession to say, no, you, you chose forgiveness. You're choosing restoration. And so I would have to speak it. I would have to write it. I would have to say it to Tim just to remind myself of my heart posture that I had chosen to make. And obviously he had some work to do as well. And the two of you had to do work because I would imagine just going out on a limb here that all of a sudden your marriage didn't, wasn't per it wasn't perfect there was nothing magical in that moment in in, in other (laughs) words you had to work on the healing process of your marriage and it was a process I would imagine yes it was a process for you know well we're 10 years post-confession and there's still moments where we're still trying to better our marriage and make it stronger but you know honestly for two years post-confession we kept our our story very, very mm-hmm. quiet. Um, our circle was, you know, intentionally smalled for the purpose of restoration. So we had counselors, we had mentors, accountability, you know, boundaries and fences in place. But we did not share with a lot of our family members or close friends. They didn't know until our church asked us for our video testimonies two years later. And that's really when the ministry was born, was out of these video testimonies, which then the 700 Club contacted us and asked to film our testimonies. So we went from having a really small circle to a national platform. Well, and you mentioned not only forgiving your husband, but also forgiving yourself. And you said something very interesting that women that have been in this situation can relate to what you were going through as far as your own need to forgive yourself. In other words, you bore the burden of what had happened or what your husband was engaging in. In, in other words, you felt that it was your fault. Absolutely. That was the first thing is, what did I do wrong? How, how did I create this mess? You know, and so to really have to do that self-reflection and realize that, you know, I can't control the outcome of this marriage. I can't control my husband or, or you know, have him choose to do this or to do that. I had to really say, okay, God, this is between you and me. Stephanie Brorsma here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website reclaimedministry.com. We are about to wrap up this edition of the Intersection Podcast, and you can learn more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. There's a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests from the Intersection Podcast, and you can find the podcast in the Media Center. There's also a link to iTunes from that homepage. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. 
There are links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the CPE International event held in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can also find conversations with guests from the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of other podcast platforms. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. There's a link to the Meeting House homepage through the programming section. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.